Well, it's about 7.30, and so we'll go ahead and get started. I am thrilled. I want to welcome everybody to the second night tonight in a series that we're doing on um, supporting the mental well-being of children and adolescents. My name is Janet hatfield Legro. I'm one of the pastors here at First Presbyterian Church, and tonight we're going to focus on adolescents. And it is my great, great pleasure to welcome my dear friend and have Joseph Allen with us. And yes, Joe is married to last night's speaker. So they are, um, Claudia and Joe are an incredible pair. Um, Joe is a psychologist at UVA, and I'll share more about Joe in a second. Um, but let's begin with prayer. Let us pray. Dear God, source of love and life, thank you for this day we have been given and the chance to be together, to talk and to learn. Our hearts and minds are focused on young people and the heavy burden, especially that they're carrying now through this long period of isolation. Help us tonight to focus our attention on them, on their struggles, and their strengths. We pray for every teenager, every young adult, for their health and growth and safety. And we pray for all parents. Help us as a community to be a place of safety and support, of compassion and affirmation. Open our hearts and minds to listen and to learn. We pray in your holy name. Amen. So welcome again um, to everybody. This whole series is really meant um, for us to support families and parents, especially parents and grandparents and teachers who are trying to support children and adolescents. So Joe, I'm so grateful that you're here with us. I'm just going to say a few words of introduction, um, but then Joe will share some, some about his work in a little bit. So Joseph Allen is the Hugh P. Kelly Professor of Psychology at the University of Virginia. His research focuses on adolescent social development, family, and peer relationships, problematic behaviors ranging from delinquency and teen pregnancy to depression and anxiety. And he also um, does long-term studies, longitudinal studies on predictive um, and long-term outcomes in, uh, into adulthood. And he's actually in year 21 of a 30-year study on some of these topics. Joe runs the Adolescent Research Lab at UVA, and I want to tell you that the website for the Adolescent Research Lab is wonderful, so that's a great place to, um, to visit and to, to do some learning about his research. And one of my favorite aspects of Joe's work is he's developed a program um, both for high schools and now particularly for university students and at UVA. It's called the Connections Project, and it's a small group project um, for first-year students to help them to build deep relationships, maybe deeper and more meaningful relationships than they might get in other parts of their life in the university and as a support for one another. And I was so fortunate, Joe, to be a part of a pilot group years ago um, with high school students um, in, as Joe was developing that program. So I'm, uh, I'd love to hear more about it and how things are going. And as I said last night, Joe and um, his wife, Claudia, are the parents of three grown children and friends of my children. And so I can personally attest to, um, to your wise counsel, Joe, in my own life and in the life of many people I know. So uh, thank you again for being here. And I'm going to start off the same way I did last night and just ask you to share anything about your current work, what you're working on, what's interesting to you, 
um, what you're discovering in your research or clinical practice. Well, sure. Well, thank you. Thank you, Janet. And um, thank you for such a nice introduction. Those, those were super sweet words. And and yes, you've actually been a significant part of the, the project. That's the thing I'm most interested in right now. Um, so I'm, I have two major uh, foci in my research um, currently. Um, one is the Connection Project, which, which you mentioned, where um, the best way to describe that is if you were lucky in high school or college, at some point you found yourself falling into a group of other young people where for whatever reason, it felt safe enough that you started to let down your guard and you realized, whoa, everybody else shares the same uncertainties and hopes and fears that I do. And when you share that, people bond really quickly and you form strong, lasting relationships. You know, I've, I've said, you know, I'm, I just was speaking last week with my best friend from high school and we've, we've stayed in touch, you know, many, many years later. But that's if you're lucky. It, it happens randomly. It happens in theater troops. It happens in retreats. It happens in wilderness experiences. But for a lot of kids, it doesn't happen. So we spent um, a good five years saying, what are the ingredients that make this happen? And how can we begin to replicate them? And, and it's a matter of helping kids feel, and this will lead into my answer to some of your questions. I think it's a matter of helping kids feel safe and recognizing that they, um, the things they're worried about that other people are worried about too, which is something that teenagers don't necessarily um, recognize. So it's a semester-long project. Um, Janet, you were instrumental, really instrumental as we were developing this for high school students and, and help. There are elements of, of the project that are really directly from you still. Um, so it's in a, it's been used in high schools. It's now being replicated nationally. Um, it's being used at UVA now for a couple of years and it's sort of growing by leaps and bounds. And we're finding the kids who are in it not only feel more of a sense of belonging and connection, they feel less depressed, they feel more academically engaged. It's good for us in a whole bunch of ways. And that's that's um that's related to my other, my the longitudinal study that we're, we've done. We're interested not in what makes a good adolescence, but what it, what is in an adolescence that makes for a good adulthood. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things we've been looking at lately is physical health. And what we're finding is that the quality of your peer relationships as early as age 13, and even as your best friend might describe them, um, predicts your physical health well into adulthood. And even your physical health and things that we can measure in the blood and that we can measure um, in you know aspects of your your genome and your epigenome, um, so and that fits with sort of a big body of studies that's shown that um, your social relationship quality, if it's not good, um, actually has more of an impact on your health and your likelihood even of dying than things like cigarette smoking or heavy drinking or obesity. Um, that we're, we're social beings and adolescents in particular are social beings. And, and I'll stop there because I think that probably leads into to my answer to a bunch of questions you're going to have. <laughs> yes, I have a bunch of questions to ask. And actually, I want to say one thing before I ask the question. And I forgot to tell people that we've been gathering questions from parents um, to, to be able to ask Joe tonight. And if you have a question tonight, um, We've discovered the only way to add them tonight is in the comments section on YouTube, but please go ahead and do that if you if we're talking and you have a question and Brick, who's here in the background helping us with IT things, he'll he'll forward that question to me and um, and we'll try to get to it. And but I am really interested when you talked about all the implications of social relationships. And I have a bunch of questions about that, but the first is really around loneliness because, um, and I guess I'll ask both, both questions. One is just if you could speak to loneliness, I think that's something that um, we feel a lot of young people are experiencing right now, both in high school and college. And my second question is, as a parent, how do you tell the difference between loneliness and just you have an introverted child who loves, who's solitary, who likes to be alone, um, 
and and how do we okay here's question number three too and i'll remind you of the but when as a parent can when as a parent do you do you do you respect their desire to be alone or their their seeming desire to be alone and when do you push them toward social relationships and how to do that all right i'm gonna stop okay well that, that'll cover our first hour right <laughs> um so um first thing and it's it, it's it's not that well recognized and it's really important i think which is adolescence is the loneliest portion of the lifespan and people are usually surprised by that because they think you've got all your friends you've got your high school friends and you know you you spend all your time with people um but while that's true it's the case that these are often new friendships and they're friendships that aren't solidly formed and that you're still figuring these things out and your best friend today may not be your best friend next week. And that's different than later in the lifespan. And I think just from that perspective, one of the most destructive things we tell teenagers are these are the best years of your life. Um, you know, physically, we'd all be happy to have our 16 year old bodies back pretty much um, except for the acne, but, but, mm -hmm emotionally, socially, mentally, maybe it was a good period, but on average, actually it's the least happy period of life. You get you get happier from then on. But if you think it's supposed to be the best years and you're feeling lonely, that's a double whammy. So, so even just letting kids know these are not the best years of your life for most kids is helpful. Um, so yes, teenagers are among the loneliest cohort um, in the country and they've been doing worse over time. So in the past decade before COVID, rates of depression went up 60%. And, and it wasn't just that kids are saying they're more depressed or that it's, you know, there's less stigma that that may be true. But if you look at something like emergency room visits following suicide attempts, those went up by 60%. That was before COVID. Um, the best data we've got since COVID from the Centers for Disease Control says that rates of anxiety and depression have, have somewhere between tripled and quadrupled. So you take this group that's lonely to begin with, that is beginning more and more depressed, you put COVID on top of it, and they're facing a, a nightmare of, mm -hmm. of sorts. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, loneliness is different from being an introvert or even from being shy. Um, to get to your second question, in that um, introverts don't mind some time alone. We all need time with each other. Um, even the introvert um, gains from spending time interacting with other people. They may find it tiring. They may not always want to do it, but they, they benefit from it. Our bodies charge up when we see other people. Like we're, 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 we are pack animals right down to our genes and our bones. Um, so we need that interaction. Um, but introverts need less of it. Um, and so the, the difference is if your child is happy doing a lot of things, if they're happy doing a lot of things alone, they're probably more of an introvert and that's fine. And, um, you know, there's been a movement in the last five or 10 years to say, to recognize that being an introvert's okay, that our society sort of rewards extroverts and, and being an extrovert and a, a people person, but introverts are often deep thinkers um, and they're also often observers. So that's, that part I think is, is, is really fine. And to sort of recognize that and value that in your child, that's a little different from the child who's socially anxious who wouldn't really mind being with people, but it just makes them tense. Um, and those kids, the more, we can talk more about that, but the, the more we get them exposed to other kids, the more we get them in social situations, the less anxious they'll be. So. Yeah. You make me think of um, so many of the groups I've worked with in churches or in schools of um, one of the benefits that I feel is that it's, um, I'm not sure the right word to use, but sort of initiated, outside initiated interaction for the kids. You know, they're like, oh, I don't want to be there, but they, but they did want to be there and they just needed us to force, <laughs> to sort of really help yes. organize the conversation to help structure it so that when they're uncomfortable, just making random conversation. One of the things that I've 
try to do is call on kids because it's so hard for them to decide to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think of, of how that might be a support when it's so hard to initiate these relationships on your own. No, I think that's really right. Um, and, you know, I think we, we're, we're all seeing an example of this, which is how many, how many of people listening here would have ever predicted a year and a half ago that their kids would say, I can't wait to go back to school. <laughs> right. And, and you didn't really want to do it until you realized how much you were going to miss it if you, you didn't do it at all. Um, and kids are going to have an adjustment going back to school because you're away from something for that long. And, you know, you're a ninth grader who was nervous about going to high school. Now you're a 10th grader. Um, that's going to be an adjustment and people are going to be stressed, but, but you get, this gets, I guess, to your question about forcing kids to do things. Um, you know, our best bet is to entice them. To oh, that's that. a better word. That's right? a good word. And, and, you know, the kid who is sitting at home and has a friend kind of, but they don't know if they should do anything. They're not sure what they would, they would do. That's, that's the place where in a month when we're, when these kids are vaccinated or when we're feeling a little safer, that's the place where you say, Hey, um, why don't you invite Mary or Jamie to the women's soccer game this weekend? And, And you pick something that's, or you say, Hey, how about we go there? Would you like to invite a friend? Um, and you pick something that's enough fun and enough structure that kids aren't going to be afraid to ask someone because they're, it's a perk, not, not an obligation. Mm -hmm. Um, and then you get them together and they're spending time with each other because they really need, they need to do that. I mean, I think youth group can be, can be that as well. And, and the goal is to make it as much so that it doesn't need to be forced as, as possible, you know, but, but there'll be, you know, lots of teenagers would rather on a Saturday morning or a Sunday morning, just lay in bed until one in the afternoon. Um, they're not necessarily going to be happiest doing that. Like mm-hmm. we, we're not good as humans and adults fit this too. We, what makes us happy in the short term isn't what makes us happy in the long term. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do want to pick up on, on social anxiety because you, i Um, I've had a number of parents ask about anxiety and especially across all the ages that it just seems to be a daily, a daily struggle and talk to us about anxiety. So, you know, we've learned stuff about anxiety over the last 10 or 15 years. Um, One of the things we've learned and I, and I tell young people that I work with this is you know, there's a reason why we're, we're anxious and even more anxious than we, than we want to be. That in, you know, evolutionary times, the person who was a little bit anxious was the person who didn't get eaten by the lion um, and maybe even warned all, warned all their, you know, fellow travelers to, to not get eaten. But today what happens is we've got that, this very sensitive alarm system and it goes off too much. It, you know, I describe it as like having the smoke alarm in your kitchen. It's really sensitive. And all you need to do is be boiling some water and suddenly it's going off and it's not telling you about smoke. It's a false alarm. What I tell teenagers is, and what I would tell parents is you want to help teenagers recognize when there's, when, when your anxiety is a false alarm and when it's something you should take seriously. And the, the false alarms are really important to push back against. Because mm-hmm. if you if you if you don't push back against them and you do something to kind of just get away from the thing that makes you anxious, the next time you go back, you're going to be more anxious. This is not. I'm saying we're learning this in the last ten or fifteen years. This is in some ways nothing more than get back on the horse, you know, after falling off, right? Mm-hmm. But 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 the flip side is the piece we've learned, which is if you put yourself in situations that make you a little anxious, and you see that they go okay, you get less anxious over time. And that's, that's the important part. And to teach your kids that pushing back against anxiety is just like building any muscle mm-hmm. that the more you do it, the easier it'll get. And the first time you do it, it's tough. The other, other analogy I use is it's like, you know, uh, an overgrown field. First time you walk through it, it's really hard. 
the fifth time you go through that path, you've trampled it down. And by the 20th time, it's really no big deal. It's exactly, our brains work in exactly the same fashion. So, so the short answer is push back against the anxiety and give your kid all the support they need. Don't throw them in over their head, mm -hmm. but really let them know and even get them to pay attention to the fact that, yep, you're really afraid of school on a Sunday night, but then by Monday morning at 930, you're actually feeling fine. Hmm. That was a false alarm. It's a good thing you didn't give into it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and is there, are you noticing any um, uh, relationship to sort of global anxiety, sort of the anxieties of society right now and the world and teenagers are so aware and so, um, so concerned about the world so they're carrying this as well. How, how do those two play? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a great question. Um, and it moves more into your, into your domain and not just mine, for sure. Um, I'm getting to hope. I'm going to ask you a question. <laughs> we want our teenagers to be aware of and concerned about the world. Mm -hmm. You know, in some, in some ways, that idealism and that willingness to see what's wrong and, and feel angst about it is a very positive human, you know, reaction to, to really bad situations. Um, we don't want them to get lost in. We we don't want them to have it bring them down and and you know sap their energy. You know, it reminds me of you know when when you get on an airplane to take a flight and they do the little spiel and they say you know if if the oxygen masks drop down and you've got small children, put on your own mask first. Because if you don't do that, you can't help anybody else. Mm -hmm. And so to tell teenagers, yeah, there is a lot going on with the world. I hope you can help be, do your part to, to make it a little better over time. Um, it's important to take care of yourself. And that means letting yourself have a good time. That means letting yourself do things that charge your battery up. Because if you don't do that, you're not going to you're not going to be any good to anybody. Mm -hmm. um, that's one thing. My other thought is... Um, one of the better antidotes to help messed up the world is, is having your own small circle, your family, your friends be as strong and tight as, as possible. And that, that's that sense of community and of, of bonding and connection that can get us through, you know, that, that got, you know, people through the bombings in London that got, mm -hmm some people through the Holocaust, right? That, that, that connection is incredibly powerful and, and to maintain that, you know, at all costs. Yeah, it's interesting. You think we talk sometimes about creating a microcosm of how we would like it to be. That's one of our, certainly one of our goals in the church is to create a community that we would like it the way we would like it to be, or we would hope for the world to be. Right. And especially with youth groups and with youth communities that they have this ability to be really creative um, in, in their community. Um, but that's a, it's another layer to it that you add of that builds resilience um, if you have it. I mean, it's, you know, I've read about the um, the London bombing in World War II, which was a horrible, you know, sustained, frightening, terrible kind of event. And there was almost no post-traumatic stress. There was almost no mental health problems. Suicide attempts went down because people really felt like they were in it together. And, and that sense of I've got a community and this is really hard, but I've got my people around me that mm -hmm. I'm, I care about and they care about me, that, that, is, that is where our energy comes from as, as humans. And the thing that I, part of the reason I think I like adolescence is they sense that in their bones. Like we, you know, as adults, we're a little bit too, we're, we're too likely to kind of poo-poo how worried teens are about their peers but I think the teens actually have it right, which is those relationships that they're learning to form are going to be what's going to matter most in their lives. And so those skills they're developing are, are crucially important. So, Joe, what I mean, 
are there things you're finding with these groups that are that are especially important that we should be providing to help them have these meaningful relationships that will carry them? That's a good question. Yeah, um, there's really there's really two major elements. Um, one is safety. Um, adolescence is scary. The social part of adolescence is scary. Um, and I, I describe high school as like, uh, you know, social Darwinian jungle, right? It's survival of the fittest, right? In, in, in social terms. And part of that is um, you never let your guard down. You never show your chinks in your armor because somebody can take advantage of them. And so if you want kids to be able to let their guard down, to be able to see that everybody else has the same chinks in their armor as, as I do, um, you have to make it safe. And so the adults, the adults really have a role. Like these groups I've decided that have that, that I described that happen naturally, there's almost always an adult involved. They're not just kids off by themselves because that's not quite as safe. Mm -hmm. um, and the other piece, which comes really naturally to, to, to you um, in, in your work, is the, some sense of common values. Um, the, um, the pro this program actually is, if anything, patterned on a religious retreat I went to in high, went to in high school. Um, and one of the hardest pieces to replicate has been the common values that everybody going on that retreat shared. But that's something you can easily you know, you, you, you've got that, right? That's, that's, I mean, you're working, you're, you're always we're working, working. We're working on it. We're working on it. But <laughs> they, they, that comes, that comes pretty naturally. Um, and then it's a matter of finding ways to help kids safely recognize how much they have in common. So we do, we do exercises. You, you were part of this, right? Where we say, you know, if anonymously, if you really knew me, you'd know one thing I'm worried about is, and kids will answer that on a card or on a uh, chat box anonymously or whatever. And then you share them. And then suddenly the kids are all like, whoa, I didn't, I thought I was the only one who felt that way. Mm -hmm. um, and that combination of um, safety and starting to recognize the sort of shared humanity that we all have, mm -hmm. um, that just brings out, that brings out people's support their empathy, their wanting, their, their desire to connect. Um, it, it, take, it builds bonds, but it also builds character. Um, and, and I think, you know, youth groups are a are perfect place uh, to, to do this. Um, any place you can bring kids together with some sort of common purpose um, and some sort of safe structure. You know, it's like, you don't just get together ideally and say, Let's just all talk about what we think about the world. That's okay, but the quiet, shy kid is going to be afraid to do that. You have to have some structure, like you said, to, to, to bring everybody in. Yeah, yeah. How about, how about for, I'm thinking of all the parents watching this, when you talk about safety and you talk about conversation and creating meaningful conversation, we had some questions about, you know, how to get your child to talk and not... Um, in a way that's respectful of them, but can be meaningful and thinking about these same desires, but, all, but in the home. Yeah. Um, so Claudia actually has a, a, I don't think she probably mentioned it yesterday, but she has a sort of uh, little saying talking about talking to your kids and your teens, which is time without criticism, which is you want to have periods where you're talking to your teen where you're just zipping it in terms of not just criticism, but advice that, that you're going to have a period of time where you're not trying to give them guidance. You're not trying to give them advice. You're not trying to correct things. You're just talking with them. And I don't know about you, but as a parent, that's not actually easy, right? Cause you're constantly seeing things and, and they're imperfect beings and you're constantly seeing the ways they're imperfect. Um, and so, um, but you know, would you really want to talk to your best friend if, every two minutes they were telling you something you could be doing better. You know, how, how good would your friendship be? Um, so, so that's one way of making it safe. I mean, there are a lot of kids who are just sort of always ducking because they're always waiting for the, you know, you really should be working more on your homework or, you know, if you got some more exercise, you'd actually feel better. Or, you know, did you ever think you're sleeping a little too late or, you know, that the YouTube is, you know, you could, you could, you can, you can all imagine your own criticisms or remember your own criticisms you offer. 
Um, so that's one piece of it. Um, another piece of safety is respecting kids' um, limited interest in how much they want to talk. So a kid who might be perfectly happy to have a three-minute conversation, and you're so thrilled you're having a three-minute conversation, they don't want to turn it into a 15-minute conversation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, hit and run, you know, take, take your good period of, like, take your good five sentences back and forth and, and enjoy it and move on. Because if you make it easy to get in and out of, your kid will be more likely to want to get into it, you know, again with you. Um, and, and so that's, that's kind of a piece of it um, as well. Um, and then the last piece there is respect their timing. Um, we had to learn this with our kids, you know, they come home from school and back when kids came home from school and you say, you know, what was your day like? And you get two word mumbles, right. Or it was like, you know, it was a day and you're like, well, okay, but like, you know, what happened? And, and what we eventually learned, um, you know, cause even though we're two psychologists, our kids taught us a lot, what we eventually learned was they were, they were burned out at that point. They'd been with people for six, seven, eight hours. They just wanted space. And then what would happen was we'd be getting ready to go to bed at 10, 15, and they would come down and start chatting. And at first, you, at, at first my reaction was, I'm sleepy, this is not really the time, but then you kind of realize, no, this is the time where it works for them. And so you work on their schedule. Um, you know, one teen I worked with just complained bitterly that his dad wanted to pencil in times to talk. And he's like, I don't work that way. You know, that, that sometimes I don't wanna talk. So you pick times where they wanna talk, you keep it short and you do it without criticism and advice. You can do the criticism and advice some other time and, and they'll want to talk more. Boy, the time without criticism. And I can even remember, I can remember full conversations in my own brain. Don't say it. Don't say it. Maybe I should say it. Don't say it. Don't say it. And often I ended up saying it and that wasn't good. But Likewise. The, and I can also remember when Maddie, our oldest, said to me after what I thought was such a nice conversation, she said, how was that heart to heart, mom? Was that long enough for you? And, and I thought, well, that was generous of her to, um, but that it really reminded me of that when you talk about keeping it short and their, their amount of time. Um, I want to bring up a uh, also a topic on timing, um, but a serious topic on timing, where one um, person asked about how, as a parent, what to do and what to say if your child tells you that they're questioning their identity, they're questioning their sexuality, um, and and that really is their timing. You know, that's their that is. Um, that is a hard thing for a child to share with a parent. And if you have any advice for us. You know, the first bit of advice is if your child tells you that you should feel flattered and honored that they trust you, right? That, that you know, if they tell you when they're 35, maybe not so much, but if they're telling you when they're in their, their teen years, they're trusting you with, with one of the most vulnerable things they're feeling in their entire world um, and not knowing exactly how you're going to react. Um, and that's the most important piece, right? That, that knowing that if, if you know, if you re, if your reaction is, is not, Oh my gosh, my child's having to go through all of this, but rather, Whoa, they trust me so much. You're going to react more calmly and a more positive way um, than you would otherwise. Um, obviously being, supportive and and letting them know how much you appreciate uh, them sharing that um and that um questioning and issues of identity are, are challenging issues and they they aren't easy things to figure out and our whole society is still figuring them out um but you're happy to, you're, you're happy to kind of talk with your kid and work with them and and think through it i think is is the right way to go the thing to be careful about is um, it can be scary as a parent that, you know, we know how much prejudice is out there um, against kids who are not just, you know, mainstream in, in terms of sexuality and identity. And 
And you don't want that fear. And what you don't want is that fear to come across to your child as like disapproval or like now my mom is frowning um, or now my mom seems really upset. You, if you feel the fear, you can say, wow, it makes me worry because it's a hard world out there, but that's, that's the world's problem. We'll help you figure this out. That's the world's problem. We'll help you figure this out. That's a, that's a beautiful statement. That's yeah. a really beautiful statement. Um, the, um, yeah, and I think that um, the identity question in general, I think, is such a huge issue for adolescents. You you take that word and take it any direction, and they're having to figure out a lot. And maybe that's another another way that youth can feel connected to one another, that they're all figuring out some aspect of their identity, of who they are, or or their place in the world. Um, what about um, a couple other uh, tough issues of substance abuse in the family and kids that are maybe navigating um, substance abuse in the family or some form of addiction? Yeah. Do you have any advice for ways for us to support you know, the, the most important thing there is to be relatively open and transparent. Um, you know, there's, I, I don't know who said this, um, but, but it, it has stuck with me that the traumas in our childhood that we know about, that we remember as adults, um, they're distressing, but we can cope with them. We, we can get over them. It's the traumas in our childhood that we didn't know about, that we aren't aware of, that, that were sort of swept under the rug. Those are the ones that stick with us. So the- Wait, can the you say that one more time? Sure, I can, I can say it better. The, the, the trauma that we were aware of, mm -hmm. we can cope with. It's the trauma that we didn't even realize was trauma at the time. That's, that's, what, that's what's hard to cope with. So, you know, having an alcoholic parent, just to use that as an example, is really hard on kids. But having an alcoholic parent where the other parent says, yeah, your mom or your dad has a real drinking problem. And yeah, you're right. When, when he or she or they came home and they were smashing things, that was scary for all of us. And that's terrible. And I bet you were terrified. That's so much easier on a kid than the parent who hopes that you didn't hear anything and just acts like everything's fine. Because, because mm -hmm. in that case, you're, you're left questioning your own judgment. You're left trying to sweep things under the rug that really need to be talked about. Um, and so, you know, you can go too far. You don't need to go into, you know, gory detail about what happened in the emergency room, you know, but, but, but letting the child know that, yep, there is a problem here. And people have problems and, you know, your dad has a real problem um, and we're hoping he can, you know, deal with it, but it's terrible for you. And we know that, and nobody wanted that for you. And it's, you shouldn't have to be dealing with this, but you do. And, and we'll try and help you. Yeah. I'm, I'm hearing an ongoing theme here of honesty. Yeah. And just whether it's in a, a, a group of peers or in your family or um, dealing with your own identity that the more we can work on that. Um, and the more authentic and honest we are with each other, the more we can, the more we can cope with, mm -hmm. you know, the more resilient we'll be, the, mm -hmm. the stronger our bonds will be. And that's, what's going to get us through it. Mm -hmm. Whatever it might happen to be, whether it's, you know, coming out as transgender, whether it's dealing with an alcoholic parent, whether it's a kid dealing with an alcohol problem, whether it's social anxiety, that, that, or, or to take it the, to, the, to the extreme, you know, parents worry, what is, is my, is my kid suicidal? Mm -hmm. You know, are they thinking of hurting themselves? Um, the answer to that, not the answer, but the right approach to that is to say, you seem really down. Do you ever think about hurting yourself? 
that that being straightforward with it is never going to give a kid the idea. Kids, the, the ideas in our in, is you know in our society you know to a disturbing extent, but having a chance to talk out loud about it, mm-hmm. scary as it might be, is a lot less scary for a kid than just having it in the inside of their head bouncing around. Just hearing you say that makes me think how important it is for us as parents to have a group where we can practice saying something like, are you, do you ever think of hurting yourself or just, um, because I remember you were the one who told me that parenting teenagers is the loneliest time for parents Mm -hmm. because we're not sitting on the playground chit-chatting about a two-year-old's tantrum we have our own child's privacy to worry about and we respect their privacy. So we can't, and often our friends are their friends, parents. And so um, the loneliness of a parent of a teenager is something that I'm concerned about and providing ways for parents to be honest with each other. And it's so, it's so hard. The, the problems that teens bring to parents are so hard to think through and, and you don't know if other parents are doing it. You don't know if you tell another parent what happened in your house last night, if they'll think, Oh my God, that's my house is way worse than that. Or if they'll think you're a disaster of a parent, right? Mm -hmm. It's really hard to know that. And, And, and it can go, you know, and sometimes people are, kind of disasters as a parent and have no idea. And some, and sometimes parents are fantastic parents and feel like they're disasters, but there's not that communication. And so, yeah, looking for ways as a, as a, and I think your, your community could do this, looking for ways to let people share things with some degree of anonymity, some hmm. degree of, of, of understandings of confidentiality, you know, bringing together groups of parents whose kids don't know each other. Um, you know, all, all those all those kinds of things, parents really need that. That that it used to be, we were in smaller communities that were tighter knit, and if nothing else, you had a large extended family that all lived nearby, and so you got to hear and share um, ideas. And we don't have that now, and 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 we 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 work to kind of make up for it. Yeah, and we're amateurs. We're doing it out of love, not out of professional training. <laughs> You know, I, I describe parenting teenagers. It is like driving down a snowy road that's windy at night with the headlights off. And you only know that you're going too far to the side when you're halfway in the ditch. And then you try and correct back. And it's just a series of corrections. Um, and, and that, you know, and then after you've done it a couple of times, you're pretty good at it and you're done. You don't get to do it anymore. Um, well, how about... How about a question about strengths, um, sort of strengths of adolescents that we can really highlight for them and affirm in them that they are, what are their special gifts? So let me take that in a slightly different way. I think we need to work to build those strengths. Okay. Um, meaning the way that we've structured the world's teenagers these days, they don't have much of a chance to do anything useful for anyone. That, you know, I, I've had teenagers, I've had my UVA students describe adolescence as living in a bubble. And the bubble is the walls of your classroom, the walls of your room at home, the internet used to be the shopping mall. I'm not sure what even replaces that, but, but not much else. And the idea is there's very little contact with anything meaningful. And so and teens need that. I mean, you know, a hundred years ago, teenagers were helping on the farm. They mm-hmm. were rebuilding a car in their backyard. They were doing things that actually were productive. And we and there's there's a lot of work to do in the world. There's plenty of ways they can be productive now. It takes us as adults being willing to be a little patient to to engage them. But getting young people, I mean, it can be volunteering in the community, or it can be um, we sort of have a joke in my house that. You know, we've said that parents should have an alarm bell in their head with teenagers and the alarm bell should go off anytime you're about to do anything at all for your teenager that they could possibly learn to do for themselves. Um, 
and it could and and then you suddenly realize well they could learn to call the dentist and make an appointment and then i wouldn't have to figure out when their soccer game was and they could actually walk a mile to the store to pick up the you know sweets that they want or whatever and and the and they could do their own laundry and they could make a meal once in a while and the thing about those things is they take some effort on the part of the parents but that's what gives a kid a sense of accomplishment of self-esteem the kid who knows they can take care of themselves and that they can do things in the world especially if they can do things that are valuable to other people that, that volunteer and help out that's where you get a sense of self-esteem otherwise you're struck you're stuck as a 10th grader in a classroom with 300 other kids, probably all from the same socioeconomic group as yourself, all taking the same set of classes, all doing the same three sports, and you're supposed to feel unique and special. And that's that's just a setup. Wow. I mean, that I love everything you said because it is so much a part of our conversation right now in the church, because there is a lot of work to do in the church. And there's a, there is a lot of work needed and um, so many ways that adolescents could be doing the same exact work that all of us are doing. In so, the- so just, this is a, this is a hobby horse of mine. So people, you know, some of you have probably seen the movie, the, the play Hamilton or the movie Hamilton. Um, he was, you know, leading one of George Washington's armies before he turned 19. Um, Joan of Arc was burned at the stake before she turned 18 and had done all of the things she had done. And you could go through history and there's just example after example. There's huge talent, you know, and if anything, adolescents are maturing more quickly now than they were then. There's huge capability. You know, as adults, we sort of run from teenagers. You know, if you see a group of teenagers six or seven, you know, at a restaurant, you don't want to sit at a table near them. We're we're a little bit intimidated by them. We sort of remember our own adolescent years and how intimidating it could be. And we need to get over our own anxieties there and reach out to them. And and as adults, if you reach out in a friendly way without criticism and, and let them know that you value them, teenagers just eat it up. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know, I work in, I, I see kids in therapy, obviously. And I constantly see kids who are like dragged in and it's not that I have any magic potion. It's that I take them seriously and really listen to them. And I'm looking for the good and not just the the problems. And they're desperate for that. Um, And so, you know, if you want to engage the teenagers in in your community, in your congregation, engage the adults um, because they're the ones who need to be inviting and to do the structuring that, that kids do need structure. They're not just going to come in and know how to do things. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, um, I was at a radio station doing an interview two years ago where the station manager was complaining that he hired a 20 year old and, and said, could you sweep the floor? And the kid said, can you show me how that's that, you know, that's not a recipe for self-esteem. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you, you, um, you know, you and I are both lovers of Outward Bound, but one of the things that I really love and admire about Outward Bound and other organizations, so many who do this kind of important work is that adolescents will translate having accomplished one thing into all other parts of their lives. They don't have to have accomplished mastery in everything. But self-esteem is, is, I think, sort of like anxiety. It can grow and find nooks and crannies. If, if it's built up in one place, they can take that and they can move it over here to someplace else. Um, that's, that's such a good observation that, you know, everything is new to teenagers. And it's, it's one of the, the fun things about that age. But what it means is if they have a new experience that's really hard and challenging, and they master it, they quickly generalize. They quickly say, okay, I can do things. Uh-huh. And, and, they, and they generalize from the bad too. But, but so we want to give them those good experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I have, um, this is just so helpful. Um, I have two last questions. Okay. And um, well, maybe three. I'm going to ask one little question, then I've got two more kind of closing questions. So 
Um, and this is connected to autonomy and agency and all these things. And this is the question of how, how much freedom to give when you're scared as a parent. And, um, and it, even, it seems to just get harder and harder to yep. send them out yep. the door by themselves. Um, in, you can pick any area, social yeah. media, anything. Yep. How- so the way I think about it is a 14 year old is ideally on a glide path toward being an 18 year old who's off in college or wherever calling their own shots. And your goal as a parent is to have that path from 14 to 18 be a steady, you know, upward, you know, movement in terms of responsibility um, on the part of a kid. Um, but the idea I think that's crucial is that responsibility um, is that autonomy comes with responsibility and that the more responsible a kid is, the more autonomous they should be. So that there are 14 year olds who can and should be able to go out and move about the world on a Friday night and have their parents trust them in terms of basically where they're going and what they're doing without very much in the way of check-ins. There are 17 and a half year olds that aren't there. And so as a parent, you want to, you both want to titrate it to, you know, to to balance it to how responsible your kid is, but you want to tell your kid that you're doing that, that the more responsible I see you being, the more freedom you're going to get. And, and obviously the reverse. So show me that you're doing your chores. Show me that you're not getting in trouble. Show me that you're getting good grades and we'll just open up everything, you know, to you. Um, if you're really struggling with those things as your parent, it's our job to kind of say, no, we want to, we want to keep the, the guardrails there. Um, you know, the, the only exception, I mean, the exception would be with addictive kinds of things. So, and, and I guess I put social media there, meaning I don't think it's probably ever very good for a teenager to be, I don't think it's ever good for a teenager to be at 3am on their, on their phone. Mm-hmm. Um, now, are there teenagers who are showing they can handle that, that freedom to, to decide when they turn it off? Sure. But it's so addictive that, that, that I would lean in the direction of saying, let's keep the restrictions on a bit. Now, recognizing that if you're getting them on that glide path to college or wherever at 18, you have to take the restrictions off and you have to give them practice. And you, I guess the only other thing I want to say is you have to let them screw up. That, that I, I tell parents all the time when their kids screw up in high school, now is when you want them to screw up. The stakes are pretty low. You don't want them to screw up when they're applying, you know, to college or when they're applying for their first job or when they've got their first job and they're suddenly realizing, you know, that, that, that the costs are really huge. You want them having the experience now. Yeah. That's what I was going to say is that just the reminder that it's messy, that the balance of freedom and responsibility, we think it's going to go chink, 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 chink. And it's so messy. (laughs) And kids learn from their mistakes. I mean, mm-hmm. arguably, a lot of kids only learn from their mistakes that, you know, as humans, we're not very good at learning because somebody just tells us something like we need to sort of see it and experience it to really learn it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. My last question, we just got about five more minutes, six more minutes. And there are two questions and you can take whatever you want. One is, you know, when you think of mental well-being for adolescents, what haven't we heard that you want us to hear tonight? Or, and and connected to that is, you know, if if you were in charge, what would you have religious communities do? What would you have us do that could really help the world, help adolescents? And you've touched on some things, but I'll leave it there. Yeah, I mean, I think. I think you have an awesome opportunity um, in that um, if adolescence is the loneliest period of lifespan and, and COVID has made it, you know, four times lonelier still, um, you have a natural place where people come together. Um, and your challenge is to listen super closely to adolescents 
to find ways of bringing them together that as many of them as possible are going to want to take up, right? That, that the challenge is not just to work with the 15 kids who come to youth group out of the 150 in your congregation. It's to figure out what kinds of ways can you entice more and more of those kids to, 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 to get engaged. And then once they're engaged, how can you make that a positive experience for them? And I think there's sort of the simple answer is you give you have them do good activities that are fun and safe and easy and structured and not too scary. But I think the real answer is if you can do some of that, their energy with each other will carry you. That mm-hmm. that adolescents have this drive to connect with their peers. And it's like I started by saying it's it's wired into us and it and it's there because it belongs there. But let's take advantage of it. And so instead of the kid who's desperate to be out with their peers and so they go out drinking on a Friday night, take advantage, give them chances to interact and just have fun and connect and talk and share in safe ways with one another. And you're kind of introducing them to the idea of community that, you know, that for the adolescent, the community will partly be the adults. And and I I know Claudia talked a little bit about that yesterday, and I, I, I agree with that. But their real community is each other. Um, and for them to get a chance to start to experience that is they're at the first age where they can start to have real, true adult-like relationships. And you are kind of in the honorable, honor, honored position of being able to shepherd them through those. And I think taking advantage of that is, is probably the single best thing um, you can do. Yeah, it's an honor. It is. It's an honor to do it. Yeah. Anything you think of that you wish you could, we didn't ask? Um, not off the top of my head. Um, you know, it's not always easy. You know, kid, meaning to work with adolescents also means having some patience that they'll be teenagers. I still remember our middle child, you may remember this, ditching a commitment she made to do something with a group of yours, you know, back when she was 14 or 15. And you, you know, you were very clear that that wasn't great, but you also were like still welcoming her back. And, and I think we have to have that tolerance for, um, for the fact that their works in progress, we're all works in progress, but they're especially works in progress and they're not finished. And as parents, we fret that our 17 year olds still have all these flaws. And, and of course they do because, they still will have them when they're 57, but, but they're only 17 um, and, and we're, they're still figuring it out. And so we have to be willing to roll with the punches. I guess that would be my last kind of thought. If we do that, it's worth it that, 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 that they pay us back. Um, and they so appreciate an adult who's both willing to recognize their maturity, but also they're not yet maturity. Yeah. They're the word. The, the word in our world is grace, that it's yeah. just, you know, just, and, um, and we say it a lot in our church and that just to have grace for each other. And I, and I didn't get a chance to ask this, but I have one minute um, with you. And that is, you know, for me, the, the role, even in the broadest sense of the term of a sense of the spiritual life, a sense of mystery, a sense of wonder that that they feel that they can be a part of, um, to me, is an important part of their inner strength. Yeah. I mean, and it's, it's why I work with teenagers. You know, the, the show, The Wonder Years, mm-hmm. was the wonder years, right? That, that, that there's this openness to experience, this willingness to take chances, this willingness to fall on your face and get back up. And this sort of life force, this life energy mm-hmm. that we see so strongly in adolescence and that we sometimes lose as adults and we'd be better off not losing. Um, that adolescence can actually teach us a lot um, in that regard um, if we're willing to listen. That's why I love them. That's why I love them. Thank you so much, Joe. I have loved talking with you. And I know that we're we're going to have some follow-up conversations with Offer follow-up discussions with parents and um, 
I, we really, really appreciate your time and sharing with us, spending it with us. So thank you. And um, I'd like to close with prayer. Let us pray. Loving God, thank you. Thank you for the chance to focus our hearts and minds on the young people in our lives, in our families, in our church, in our city, in our world. They are so precious and so valuable. Help us to find a million ways to care for them and love them and build structures of compassion for them. We pray in your holy name. Amen.